All right, and now I'd invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. The title of this sermon is Don't Go Back! Exclamation point. Don't go back. Galatians 4, 8 through 20. And uh, I'd like to pray again. Father, thank you once again for the privilege and the weight of preaching your holy word to your people and to those who don't yet know you. God, we pray that your words of eternal life would renew us. We pray that your love would shine in and through your word for us in a way that we are not the same when we walk out of this building, when we drive out of this parking lot, that we are changed by the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit through your holy word preached and and heard. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. If you would, please read with me Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. This is God's word. Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen. So I mentioned earlier in my prayer that video. Raise your hand if you've seen that video of the sheep rescue with the ditch. Okay. Gosh, look. An impoverished congregation, right? (laughs) So, your homework assignment is to Google sheep rescued back in the ditch, okay? (laughs) So, there's this video. um, It doesn't take long to explain. Someone, there's this long, narrow, very narrow ditch, and and someone, I guess the shepherd, rescues this sheep painstakingly out of this ditch. It wasn't easy. It was hard. and, 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 And you see this bursts of freedom like the sheep just tears off right and it goes right back into the ditch like it's within like two microseconds it's rescued and then it's back in the ditch and there's this 
oh, this facepalm moment when you see, like, you wanted to see it be free at least for a little while longer, and then it just jumps right back into that stupid ditch, right? Now, you know, that, that's a really funny example, but that phenomenon is what Paul is, is experiencing as he shepherds these Galatian Christians. You know, the sermon series we're in right now is called Gospel Reset. You know, we've been through a lot with pandemics and all kinds of turmoil, and and in and, and this new season, uh, Pastor Joel and the elders thinking, you know, we just a gospel reset, you know? What is the main thing that our church is about? We're about Jesus and his good news. That's what we're about. And that's what the whole Christian life is about. Receiving God's love through faith in Jesus and then reflecting that love. Being planted in the love of Jesus for you and then growing and sowing that love that Jesus has for, for, to God and to other people. That's, that's the whole Christian life. Receiving love and giving love through faith in Jesus. That's it. You don't mature beyond that. You mature more and more into that. That's what it's all about. And so this part of Paul's gospel reset to these Galatian believers who had fallen into false teaching and slavery um, through false teaching of the Judaizers, um, he is... He is giving them this gospel reset, but what the, the part of his letter that we're in right now is this very personal, painful exclamation of surprise. Because though the, the, the sheep video is funny, this is dead serious. This is heaven and hell kind of stuff here. Because he's expressed his heart's cry, like, I'm terrified that I may have labored over you in vain, that I may have been cultivating the soil and watering the soil and coming out and checking the seeds and pulling the weeds around you and, and, and making sure that you've got just the right amount of sun and shade and, and that, boom, you, you're, gonna, you're withering, that, that you're not a fruitful plant. I'm terrified that, that you might not be saved, but, but I'm hopeful for you and, and the Holy Spirit's having me write this letter to you, so, you know, come back to Jesus. Don't go back to a life of slavery. You're already kind of doing it. Come back to Jesus. And like the Galatians, all of us, on a daily basis, really, but there may be more specific seasons of our lives where we too can stray into letting other trusts intrude into what we base our confidence in our relationship with God on. And God is calling us to a gospel reset. Sort of when you get married, you know, forsaking all others, cleave only to your spouse, right? To cleave to Jesus and be set free from any other thing that would try to get in the way or distract you from Jesus. And that's what we see in this passage this morning. Paul's saying, how can you go back to the cult of rules, like ridiculous rules, and abusive relationships, and forsake your relationship with God and the people who love you. That's what he's saying to them. How can you go back? How can you jump right back into the ditch? You're in the ditch of non-believing, just pagan worshiping of idols, but you jump back into the, it's really the same ditch, of trying to take the whole Old Testament ceremonial law on yourself after it's already been fulfilled by Jesus. Now that's become paganism. That's become slavery. And so we'll look at that. And he's saying, return to Jesus. 
So Paul's telling these believers and, and us, right, reminding us as we walk with Jesus, there may be a time in your life in the future where tuck this away for later because you may be truly caught in a snare like these people and, and remember what God t- tells you through his word this morning from Galatians. Paul is telling them, first, remember your salvation. Gospel reset. Boom. Remember Jesus and God's love for you. Remember, and remember our love together, that you got saved through God sending me to preach the gospel to you. Remember your love for me. Remember, remember your salvation and the life of love with God and with his people who love you. And then he says, second, recognize your slavery. See it for what it is. It's not just, oh, another way of thinking about God or just another flavor of Christianity. No, it is a cult. It is anti-Christian. It is moving you away from Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Recognize the slavery that you've been slipping into and then finally return to your Savior. So remember your salvation, recognize your current slavery, and return to your Savior because there you will find freedom that he's given to you through his suffering, death, and resurrection for you. So let's look at what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. First, remember your salvation. Where does he talk about that? Well, let's look. Verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. We'll get into that in a minute. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? So let's look at this, okay? You used to not know God, now you know God. And really, ultimately, what's He knows you. Let's talk about what the word know means in this context. You know, there's lots of people and philosophers and you know, professors and stuff where if you ask them, like, one, do you believe there's a creator of all things? And two, if there is a creator, do you believe that you can have a personal relationship with this creator and really know that you know the creator, right? How many people now, like just teaching in universities or people who are super smart or whatever, would say that, yeah, oh, of course you can know God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know God. You can know God. He wants to be known. He's not hiding himself. He, he's revealing himself. He showed up in the flesh. You know, how many people would say that? Probably not a lot. And so it's, you're actually, you kind of look stupid if, if to, to many people in our culture, if you say, you know what, I know God and you can know God too. <laughs> you look like an idiot. <laughs> because it's like how naive or arrogant to think that you actually know the Creator. No one can really know for sure, right? They say arrogantly, thinking that they know that no one can know for sure. But so this is a big deal. Like back up just a minute how big a deal this is. God's Word tells us and everyone, you Either know God or you don't know God. The one true and living God. There's not all these paths to the same. You either know the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who became flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, or you don't know God. But you really can know God, and so I want you to know God, so trust in Jesus, right? You can know God. 
And so he, he reminds them of their before and after. Remember. Remember what life was like for you before you came to know God. Remember your salvation. Remember your great deliverance. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the uh, Colossians describes this, this salvation as being transferred from the dominion of darkness, of bondage to Satan himself, and being rescued. You know, you think about like international justice mission. They, they rescue people from sex trafficking and they're in bondage and abused and they come in and they, they rip them out of this life of bondage and darkness and slavery and they set them free and they help them get counseling. It takes years to heal from that stuff, but they begin to have hope and they grow and, and hopefully come to know Jesus, right? You have been delivered. You've been rescued. You've been set free. You once were serving idols of wood and stone. They are the creatures. They are not the one true creator. You were a slave to these things and, and all the stupid rules that went along with them. And a lot of the, the Greco-Roman religions, there are these weird rules about what you can eat and what you can't eat. And, and Paul tells in other letters, these are actually doctrines of demons, you know, forbidding marriage, forbidding eating of meat. Now, if you want to be a vegetarian for health reasons, whatever, that's cool. But if it's spiritual reasons, that's actually called a doctrine of demons by Paul. With these Greco-Roman pagan religions, there were all these ridiculous rules that were imposed on people. And, and Paul is saying, how is it that you could turn back having, now that you actually know God and have been saved, have been rescued, how can you try to jump back into that ditch? A different name, a different flavor, a different sort of variety, but the same putrid, rotten, poisonous ice cream, right? How can you do that? So he's reminding them of their salvation, and I love this because he says, now that you've come to know God, that knowing is an, it implies intimacy. It's, it's, it's a relational knowledge. It's not like, hey, I know George Washington, or I know about George Washington. Like, hey, you know, his wife knew George Washington. You know, there was, an, there was a relationship. His kids knew George Washington, right? He's saying, you actually know the one true living God. You, ha you have a loving relationship with him. You've been set free. And rather, to be known by God. That before all, before creation, God set his love on you to adopt you as his own beloved child. The holy, sinless one who is light and in whom there is no darkness, no abuse, none of that. He chose to adopt you and bring, him, bring you into his family. That's what Paul's saying. To be known by God, to be chosen in a holy way, to be his true children through Jesus Christ. There's this intimacy. He's reminding them that God loves them and that they do love God, but, but they're falling into this slavery. All right? And then he also reminds them within the context of their salvation of the love that, they're experienced, that they've experienced by being part of God's true family, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds them of their loving relationship. He goes on and on, frankly, in, in this passage to talk about that. Let's look at his description of their loving relationship, right? He says, um, you did me no wrong, verse 12, verse 13. 
you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So something happened with Paul. He was struggling, suffering. He couldn't go on according to his plans, like, you know, be flexible on a mission trip, right? Be flexible. That's what they tell you. If you're going to go on a mission trip, you're going to do missions. Be flexible. Be flexible because the plan's going to change. You know what I mean? Something happened to him. His ailment, his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, we're not told specifically. He kind of had to go and stop in Galatia, and he ended up preaching the gospel to them. Now, whatever was going on with him physically or emotionally or spiritually, it could cause some people to not want to hang out with him. Okay? It's something that may have been embarrassing or make him look like not a strong leader. Whatever you look for in a strong leader, like, you know, oh, Saul, he's the one. He's tall and handsome. You know, whatever. He was, whatever his affliction was, it, was embar- it would be embarrassing to some people. But look at, he reminds them primarily not of his love for them, but of their love for him. Remember our relationship and the context of being mutually saved by Jesus. Remember this. Verse 14, and though my condition was a trial to you, maybe it was something where they had to physically attend to him on a regular basis. I'm not sure. Where like when Paul's coming to town, it's going to be a lot of work, but we're glad he's here. You know what I mean? Um, My condition was a trial to you. You did not scorn or despise me. You You didn't like shun me because of my disability or whatever was going on. You embraced me. You know, other people wouldn't, but you did. You love me. Remember that you actually love me. He says, but receive me as an angel of God. I mean, whoa, what a welcome, right? That's kind of a red carpet, right? As an angel of God. And then he goes on like, as Christ Jesus, you treated me as if Jesus himself had gotten on the boat and sailed to Galatia and shown up at your front door. That's how well you treated me. You honored me so much. Remember the love that you have for me. He goes on. Verse 15. What then has become of the blessing you felt? It's like they broke up with Paul. You know? We'll talk about this in a minute, but through their cult-like Judaizing religious situation, they were isolated from Paul who actually truly loved them and pointed to Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What's become of this blessing? Verse 15, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, some people think, well, he must have had an eyesight problem and that's why he says that. We don't know for sure. He could just be saying, like something that would be really crazy to do, you know, gouge out your eyes and give them to someone. It may just be an extreme example. We don't know. But the point is, look how you love me. Look at our relationship. Remember your salvation your union with Jesus, God's love for you, and then remember our loving relationship that salvation brought because we are both saved by Jesus and therefore we we have a, a connection with one another that we don't have with those who don't yet know Jesus. Remember your salvation. And so then he, after reminding them of their salvation, their before and after, he says, recognize your slavery you need to open your eyes to what you've fallen into. It's like a frog in a pot, you know? It's like, oh, these people are visiting our church. They seem real nice. Oh, they're having a Bible study at their house. Well, that's cool. I like the Bible. I love Jesus. Let's study the Bible. And slowly over time, they're like, well, hey, we're so glad you have faith in Jesus. That's awesome. But, okay, 
If anyone says that to you, they're in a cult. Run away from them, right? We're really glad you have faith in Jesus, but, right, that's the first red flag. You, you have to become Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You have to, like, eat this, don't eat this. You have to keep these feasts. You have to, like, come to Jerusalem this many times a year. When those had already been fulfilled by Jesus and had fulfilled their purpose and were dead husks that became a false religion if they were embraced post-Jesus and his resurrection by these people. He says, you need to know that you've been brought in to slavery. Slavery of two things, kind of two categories. Ridiculous rules and abusive relationships. So I got to spend over an hour on the phone with uh, a woman who's a counselor in Colorado um, named Connie Mitchell, and I just looked her up online because I was interested in cults. So there have been these documentaries, I can't officially recommend them or whatever, but there have been these documentaries about cults that have come out in the last few years, and kind of an interest in that, but you know, they talk to people who were in a cult, and what it's like to come out of a cult, and there's all kinds of cults, and um, part of her ministry is, is counseling people who've been rescued from sex trafficking, who've been also rescued from cults, okay? And I don't want to, her description of what she and her husband went through, they were part of a cult called the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, what they went through, she talked about someone else in a different cult that, or maybe the same one, it took like 40 years for her to feel like she had been healed, her friend. 40 years to, ha to undo the damage of being in a cult. So when I talk about this being a cult-like thing, I don't want to minimize the actual capital C cult experience that people have, okay? But I think that what I notice is that Paul is describing what's happening to these Galatians. There is a cult-like nature. There, there's, there's a cult-like aspects to their current religious approach that he is seeking to call them back out of to cling to only Jesus, okay? So let's look at that. Two key things about cults often, there's many more, but are ridiculous rules and abusive relationships. So... Let's think about the ridiculous rules. Look how he speaks to them about these things. Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. What is he talking about? Well, here, he's used the language uh, earlier or later about their pagan religion, their, 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 their Greco-Roman worshiping these false gods religion as being involved in the elementary basic principles of the world. And the Greek word is stoikia. And what's interesting is this same phrase elsewhere, like in Colossians, in the English Standard Version, which I'm preaching from, is then tra translated as elemental spirits, okay? And so he may just be talking about just plain rules, but when you look in Colossians, he's talking about the rules of like don't eat, you know, taste or touch, but he's, but he's actually talking right then in that context about being rescued from the principalities and powers that... God triumphed over the principalities and powers, these demons, these fallen angels that are, are real beings but are not God. And what's interesting is that this word is translated both ways in the same Bible, depending on the context. So 
it's primarily talking about the ridiculous rules, but you have to know that when that phrase is used, often there's demonic activity behind that that's assumed. There's a connection there. Okay, Again, like doctrines of demons. He talks about earlier some of these rules or doctrines of demons. Now what's kind of crazy is that Paul does use that phrase to talk about the bondage that they experienced under the old covenant system as Jewish believers before Jesus came compared to the freedom that we have in the new covenant. He's not talking about demonic activity in that, in that part. But, but what we'll see is to go back to that system after Jesus has already fulfilled it does involve demonic activity because it's a false gospel. It's, yeah, that's good you believe in Jesus, but you got to do this stuff. You got to do this, do this, do this. And so look at the ridiculous rules. He talks about these, these he describes them as worthless, poor, powerless. He, he uses mocking terms to describe the rules that they were now following with those basic principles of the world. And, and so he gives specific examples. But what's, when I say ridiculous, I want to be careful. I don't want to sound blasphemous. It's actually the feast that God commanded the Jews to keep in this context. It's Jewish feasts like, that are in the Bible. And so when I say ridiculous rules, I'm not mocking God's word. I'm not mocking the Old Testament. So what, why would I say ridiculous rules? And why would Paul treat them as ridiculous rules at this point? It's because of the timing of them. That, that this side of the cross... They would try to put this yoke of the Mosaic ceremonial Jewish law on themselves as Gentile Christians. That is absolutely ridiculous. I'm going to give you kind of an illustration. Imagine that you're a 45-year-old adult. You're in the kitchen. You're like washing the dishes. Your, your kids are, are getting ready to sit down at the table for dinner. And there's a knock at your door. And you open the door, and it is, you look down a little bit, it's short, little old Miss Jenkins, your first grade teacher from elementary school. And she has traveled all this way to your house to look at you and say, all right, y'all, come outside, get in a single file line, all right? No talking, no talking. I want y'all to get in a single file line, I want you to follow me, and, and when I... Go like this, you may not speak at all. Can you imagine if as a 45 year old, like, oh, okay, honey, honey, get the kids. Okay, all right, just put it in the fridge. Okay, we've got to do something. All right, let's go outside, let's go outside. And you start following in a single file line, you're like, shh, 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 and you follow. And then and she's like, okay, you can talk. No, you can't talk now. You're like, okay, okay. That's a silly illustration, but it gets at the absolute ridiculousness of them taking these rules back on themselves. It's, that's crazy. Or what if you were a soldier, like, fighting in battle, like you were in the thick of it, you were on the front, you were getting shot at, and your old um, boot camp drill sergeant shows up on the front operating base, forward operating, I was never in the military, so I'm trying real hard, so if I'm getting the terminology wrong, just be gentle with me. Forward operating base. Your old drill sergeant from boot camp shows up to the fob and goes, give me 50 push-ups. And you're like, uh, okay. And you start doing push-ups and people are shooting at you. It's like, that would be stupid and ridiculous, right? That's what this is like. He's saying these are ridiculous rules. It's absolutely inappropriate that you would take this on yourself 
have, with them having already been fulfilled by Jesus. So then he also talks about and points out their abusive relationships. So when I say abusive relationship, what do I mean? Well, there's all kinds of things you could say about abusive relationships, but basically it's a relationship where someone is, doesn't love you, they're just using you to glorify themselves, and often they put conditions on you being accepted by them. Okay, um, that's, that's an abusive relationship. And so what Paul, I think, in describing the behavior of these Judaizers, these people that were seducing them into taking upon themselves the Jewish law, um, these were abusive relationships. Let me show you why I say that. And this is a cult-like thing to do to these Galatian Christians. How does he describe them? Verse 17. He says, They make much of you. Okay, and the word is like zealously court you. They're pursuing you. They're love bombing you or whatever, like cults do, right? They're, they're like, hey guys, they're so welcoming. They're so nice. They're so friendly. They're courting you. They're like, hey, I want to be your friend. You know, like, welcome, welcome to town. Let's, we want to be your friend. We're having a party. Come to our party. They're just, they are, pers they are pursuing you, okay? But what does he say about the nature of this pursuit relationally what does he say verse 17 they make much of you but for no good purpose they're actually doing this for a bad purpose they have bad motives there's a sinister dark demonic thing happening underneath their smiley zealous pursuit of you it's to no good for no good purpose they want to shut you out that you may make much of them isn't that interesting so there's these relational dynamics of like people kind of courting you for friendship, right? And you're like, oh, these people are cool. They believe the Bible. I believe the Bible, blah, blah, blah. So you start hanging out. But then there starts to be that, yeah, it's good you believe in Jesus, but, and then all of a sudden there's these other things that that group is sort of all about. And, and they kind of like start distancing themselves from you until you kind of get on board with whatever those things are. So you're courted, but then they're cold to you for a little while. And why is that? How does that work? What are they after? It's so that you will make much of them. You will worship them. You will look to them for your salvation. You will look to them as a mediator between you and God so that you will, will seek them. They want to get you glorifying them by that cult-like pursuit and abusive dynamic. And Paul's pointing that out to them. This is what's happening. They might make much of you, but then they exclude you that you may make much of them. Beware of any kind of relationship like that. I read an article about why evangelicals are so susceptible to cults. It was absolutely fascinating. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but like, look it up. It's really interesting. Don't think that this couldn't happen to you, all right? No matter how well you've been discipled and all that stuff, this shows the absolute strong, except for the power of God, power that legalism has in our hearts. That legalism is so much stronger as an impulse in us the, the, and with legalism goes competition, right? As I was uh, speaking to the, the youth and the leaders going on the St. Louis, before they went on the St. Louis mission trip, I, I just reminded them that 
you know, when we're not resting in God's love for us, instead of cooperating with other believers, we compete with other believers. That's what legalism does. It isolates you from other people because you have to be better at the rules than all those other people so God will like you. Like, look at my crayon drawing. His crayon drawing stinks. Look at my crayon drawing, right? And we have our own sophisticated 44-year-old ways of doing that stuff, right? And so, but beware that, that these dynamics are subtle and that this is not just for the Galatians. It's for you too. It's for me too. That, that there is always a legalistic bent deep down and it's part of the remainder of our old nature, our flesh, that wants to compete with others for our relationship with God. And we want to be worshipped. So these ridiculous rules and abusive relationships, he's like, how can you jump back into that ditch after you've been rescued into such greater freedom? He's grieving over them. Recognize your slavery. And then he, he tells them, return to your Savior, to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. See, cults point you not to the historic Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's Jesus plus something else, or they distort his nature. They deny the Bible's teaching that he's fully God and fully man. He came to, to, to take your sin upon himself and to obey in your place and suffer the cross, die and rise again from the dead for you. They, they deny those things. And so the way to be set free is to run to Jesus himself. That's how you're set free. And that's how you call people to be set free. If it's not leading you to Jesus Christ himself, it's slavery. So come back to Jesus himself. Talk to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Where do I find that? Where, where is he saying that? Or where is, is this implied? Verse 19 <clears throat> He continues on saying, my little children, isn't that a beautiful expression? He's not patronizing them. This is a, a, a title of deep affection and concern. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What is he saying there? He's using very strong, like, I'm like a woman in labor screaming out, and they didn't have epidurals back then, right? screaming out in pain over you until Christ is forming you. So he's being pastorally wise and careful here. On the one hand, he's treating them as Christians because they've come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are slipping into this cult thing. And so like, if they persist in the cult thing, they probably weren't truly Christians to begin with. And so that's the pastoral wisdom there. Of like, on the one hand, I'm treating you as a believer, but I'm also telling you I'm concerned that you may not be a believer. And so I feel like I have to get back you know, in that, in that delivery room and cry out once again until Christ is formed in you. What does it mean for Christ to be formed in us? It means for us to be clinging to Jesus as our sufficient Savior. That Jesus plus nothing, as Joel has preached over and over, is everything. It's everything. That your freedom and your salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, crucified, risen, ascended, and seated at the right hand of God until He comes again. Isn't this beautiful? The simplicity of our salvation, that though we try to complicate it and other people try to complicate it, that Jesus is calling to you saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who labor 
and are worn down by ridiculous rules and maybe even abusive relationships, come out and come to me and you will find rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls because it is finished. Amen. Please pray with me. God, you are so good to us. God, thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for saving us, Lord. We pray for any who are caught in any of these kinds of things that you would rescue them, even today. We pray that this passage would equip us to minister to those who are ensnared by such things and that this passage would protect us from future ensnarements for ourselves and for others. Lord, we love you, we worship you, and we thank you so much for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.